0: This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Heather Cox Richardson, who is a professor of history at Boston College. She has written, I guess, six books, seven books because of the new one. The most recent book, which we're going to be talking about, as well as other topics, Democracy, Awakening, Notes on the State of America. We also have How the South Won the Civil War. And there are earlier books, which I guess deal mostly with 19th century history in America?
1: Mostly except for the the one before How the South Won was the History of the Republican Party. So that is the 19th and very much the 20th century.
0: And of course, she is also the author of the newsletter, which is on Facebook and Substack letters from an american before we went on the air you explained democracy awakening has three parts the first is how we got here the second is where we are now and the third traces i guess democracy back in this country this is being recorded the day after kevin mccarthy (laughs) has been uh, dumped from the house of representatives and i know that your newsletter covers a lot of that. But first, I'd like to ask two questions from the third part of the book, things that I didn't quite get in high school history because they were not quite explained the way they are here. The first is Andrew Johnson's impeachment, because what we mostly heard was, great for the USA, he didn't get impeached. But in Democracy Awakening, you tell a slightly different story.
1: So Andrew Johnson is one of those moments when the country did not luck out. There are there many occasions on which something odd happened and it turned out unusually good. This is one where something odd happened and it turned out unusually badly. So Andrew Johnson is elected with Abraham Lincoln in 1864, but he is not a Republican. He's actually a Democrat. He's actually a Democrat from Tennessee. And what he wants after the war is largely to simply return the country to what it looked like before the war, with the exception of the fact he wants to get rid of human enslavement. And he wants to get rid of it, not because he cares at all about black Americans, but because he believes that slavery enables a very few enslavers to concentrate wealth that keep white guys like him down. So as soon as the war is toward the end, it's not actually officially going to end for a while, but after um, Lee surrenders his army of Northern Virginia in April of 1865, You know, it seems as if the country is on a trajectory to really create that new birth of freedom that Abraham Lincoln talks about in the Gettysburg Address, when, in fact, very quickly after Lee's surrender, Abraham Lincoln is assassinated. When that happens, Johnson ascends to the White House. And when he does so, it's really important to remember that Congress is not in session. That's a really important piece that I certainly was never taught in school. And what that means is he gets to do Reconstruction however he wants for the first about nine months. Congress isn't going to come back into session until December of 1865. And what he does essentially is to put back into the body politic all but about 1,500 of the people who had been behind the Confederacy in the first place. And part of the reason he does that is because he is determined to unwind the Republican project. And the Republican project in its early years was not just about ending human enslavement. In fact, that's not where it started. It was about creating a new kind of government that served ordinary Americans. And that's that's what the Republicans were trying to do. That's what Lincoln was trying to do. And Johnson goes out of his way to try and gut that government and roll it back to what it was before the, the, the Civil War in the, in the 1860s. Part of his impeachment is exactly that. That he is trying to unwind that government and he's trying to take the country back to a period before there was what he called a Republican empire, and, and he meant that internally, that was crushing little guys like him. And so the, his impeachment, which is in a funny way kind of a footnote is actually, uh, on the one hand, about his determination to impose, you know, basically to get rid of what is the popular form of government in the the United States at the time, and to impose his own view. But he ends up not being convicted by the Senate, in part because of the sheer disruption it was bringing to the country to have a president at odds with the Congress right after a civil war. And he is literally out there calling for members of Congress to be hanged. Uh, and comparing himself to Jesus Christ, which doesn't help either. But that that moment in which we have our first impeached president and the recognition on the part of Congress that they can't have any more instability is a really fraught moment because it not only means that Andrew Johnson continues in the office, although he's, his wings are very much clipped after that, but it also says we need to have enough peace in this country that we can continue the country going forward. And it sets a tone for the rest of the, of the of the century.
0: And then Grant comes in and we have the real Reconstruction?
1: Yes, Grant is a really underappreciated figure because he understands what's at stake for Reconstruction, and he really tries to impose it. So he takes office in 1869, and when he does so, he really works to put down the Reactionary Southern white Confederates that had been empowered by Andrew Johnson. And he, of course, is. Part of the effort to get the 15th Amendment added to the Constitution, which protects black voting. But he's also behind the creation or part of the creation of the Department of Justice in 1870. And the Department of Justice was designed to crush the KKK in southern states, primarily in South Carolina. And he does so, he works very hard to do that. But one of the things that is really frustrating about doing the Grant years is Grant is brilliant. I mean, people forget that Grant not only is trying desperately to pull the country back together the North, the South, and the West. Remember, he knew the West quite well, and he's trying to make sure that black Americans actually have rights, black men have rights. So he's doing all of those things, but he is also later on in his life going to be an absolutely brilliant writer who's instrumental in starting an entirely new form of literature, the realist form of literature. I mean, the man had a lot going on upstairs, but one of the things he didn't have was connections in Washington because he really emphasized the idea of military promotion, that you should get your job based on how good you were at doing it and on your loyalty within that system. And so the other Republicans, the Republican senators, primarily Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, really resented that he wouldn't take their advice and that he wouldn't take their appointments. So they decide to declare war on him basically almost from the beginning of the time he comes into office. Charles Sumner used to sit in the cloakroom, the the Senate cloakroom, and make fun of him, make fun of his own president. And they want very much to wrest control of the party out of his hands. They believe he's this backwoods guy in the West and give it to Sumner. And so really very early on, by about 1870, they are already taking stands against Grant and trying to undercut him. And they're, they're actually one of the reasons that Reconstruction collapses in the 1870s under Grant's term is because they are so deliberately insisting that he is corrupt and that his governments are corrupt, when in fact, that's, that's largely a made up story.
0: But they were not Southerners. I mean, it was more
1: personal? It was personal, but it was also about power. Charles Sumner really believed that he should run the Republican Party because he had suffered for it. Remember, he got the tar beaten out of him on the floor of the Senate right. in 1856, and you know, he believed he was the he was the guy with the brains. He spoke a number of languages. He had connections all through Europe. And here was this guy who just came out of nowhere in the West, who, you know, was this backwoods guy. And he really believed that he should have the power in the Republican Party. And he was very close to a number of people. One of the people he was very close to was a newspaper man. And he brought a lot of newspaper men on board with this idea that, that Grant was corrupt. And, you know, we could actually do this entire interview just about Grant and about <laughs> things like credit Mobilier, which is a fascinating story. But I suspect we're so far down a rabbit hole now that only <laughs> me and three other grant scholars are going to be enjoying this.
0: <laughs> Two things I'm getting out of what you're talking about. One is that the insanity we're going through today, it's different, but it's also part of how Americans function in their government. The other part of it is that what I learned in history about that was he was kind of a drunk. And that's basically it. It's just like with Grover Cleveland, another person who was very important and another rabbit hole we could sink into and probably shouldn't. What we heard is, okay, he wins, he loses, he wins, and that's pretty much it. But again, how that deals with our democracy and how Benjamin Harrison came in is another slice at American democracy
1: itself. Well, so just just to be clear, Grant did have a problem with alcohol. It tended to assert itself when he was bored, so he did not drink on campaigns. He did drink during sieges, and um, I could we could talk a lot about Grant's eating habits and drinking habits, which is actually itself another interesting <laughs> question. But but Cleveland is an especially interesting person because. Cleveland is one of those people who've been written out of our history. And yet Cleveland articulated the idea that the government had become too deeply into the pockets of the very wealthy, and that the country was being torn apart by the the very wealthy basically taking everything. So he says, listen, at the time, what people were really worried about was were the tariffs, the idea that these tariffs protected big business, enabling them to collude to raise prices. So even as if in the 20th century, people assigned a whole lot of meanings to taxes. In the 19th century, that was tariffs. So even though tariffs are sort of specific economic tools, they carried with them a ton of baggage. And in the 19th century, what you fought about was the tariff. And Cleveland articulated what it would mean to ordinary Americans to have tariff rates lowered. That is, they, they would basically have a better shot at having fairer prices than they did in the 1880s and in the 1890s. And he articulates that and because of his being able to bring people to that standard, the Republicans decide that he is deadly dangerous. So he is elected in 1884. He does not have control of Congress. He has control of the White House, and he has control—I think it's of one house of Congress, off the top of my head—and so he can't get the 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 tariff lowered. He doesn't have the power to do that. And the Republicans are so horrified. That in 1888, they essentially just flood the airwaves with everything and threaten people who don't vote for the Republicans that they're going to lose their jobs. They do all kinds of stuff. Even still, Benjamin Harrison loses the popular vote by about 100,000 votes. And there's some hanky-panky that goes on in the Electoral College in the New York delegation to make sure he becomes president. So Cleveland, it's this unbelievable moment where he has won the popular vote. He has won the popular vote. He's in the White House, but he has to pack up and leave. And he gives a speech where he's like – this is it. We have lost this country to plutocrats. We've got a real problem. So, Benjamin Harrison very clearly says he's going to run his White House for businessmen. It's going to be a businessman's administration, he says. And they pass a whole bunch of legislation that actually raises the tariff that's enormously unpopular. And in the midterm elections of 1890, we have this extraordinary flipping of the the House in the favor of the Democrats because people are so mad at Harrison. And Because of that, Cleveland is reelected in uh, 1892 and also gets control of the House and the Senate. So for the first time since the Civil War, the Democrats have control of the White House and Congress. And this makes the Republicans go absolutely green. And they begin to say, that's it. We're going to have a depression. Uh, the, The Democrats don't know how to manage the money. Everything's going to be just absolutely terrible. You should all take your money out of the stock market. And there turns into this run on the stock market. There turns into a run on the banks, and literally, the it's just such a great period. The Secretary of the Treasury says, "I only have to keep this country afloat until the day I am, until the day my successor takes takes over," and they don't quite make it. The economy collapses ten days before Cleveland gets into office. And what's interesting about that moment is that most people, if you look this up, it will say that Cleveland presided over this economic crash with the implication that he caused it. It was 10 days before he took office. It was a manufactured crisis that the Republicans threw into his lap. And it continued to have repercussions because it cemented the idea that Democrats didn't know how to manage money.
0: And that's continued. Uh, I don't want to get into it, but at some point, we wind up progressives coming into the Republican Party, and that shifts as well with Teddy Roosevelt. Heather Cox Richardson, I don't want to go too much further into that, but I certainly can see where we could. Uh, I I want to tell you a little about something that happened and talk about it. And it's something which you mentioned before we went on the air. You don't get asked much about. Uh, I'm on the KPFA local board, and there are people on the local board who believe in voting for third parties, who don't like Biden. So let me start by giving you a quote from Gore Vidal, which they actually used. And of course, it's a little out of date now because of MAGA, but I'm just curious what you as a historian think of it. He said, there is only one party in the United States, the property party, and it is two right wings. Republicans are stupider, more rigid, more laissez-faire capitalists than the Democrats, who are cuter, prettier, a bit more corrupt until recently, and more willing than the Republicans to make small adjustments when the poor, the black, the anti-imperialists get out of hand. Essentially, there is no difference between the two parties.
1: You've got to love yourself, some Gore Vidal, don't you? <laughs> it's such a great way with words. Um, so there's so much to unpack there, and the the place that I would like to start is that the and it of course, now I'm like, I want to talk about the history of it. But let me start here in the present. And that is that what what Joe Biden is, is an institutionalist. And there are times when we don't need institutionalists, because our institutions are secure. And right now, the the issue at hand, as I see it, is that one of our major parties has ceased to believe in democracy, they've ceased to believe in those institutions. And their replacement for those institutions is authoritarianism. The, the problem with seeing both parties the same in the same light right in this moment is that it presupposes that we need to tear the entire system down, which is what a position a lot of people on the left take, both in domestic affairs and in foreign affairs. And my problem with that is that historically, when you tear down the guardrails of liberal democracy, both at the national and at the, at the uh, international level, you must have something to replace them. You must have something better to replace them with. And right now, I have yet to see anything that is not authoritarianism, which is not going to be better on any of these fronts. So a lot of people, especially from the left, looked at me, look at me and say, come on, we suck overseas. Am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to use that yeah, word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Come on, we d- we've done terrible things overseas. And, and that's absolutely true. And the, the United States is absolutely... You know, completely unfair right now. And I would be out in front of that discussion. If I could do anything right now, the very first thing I would do is to enact a much more progressive tax, much more, much more progressive tax. But if you look at the systems, I think that what is important about Biden right now is he is, and he says this, I'm not inventing this, he says, I am protecting the systems that have stood us in good stead as systems since World War II. And the problem with attacking those right now from any direction is that if we tear down those systems, the the only thing that is looking right now to replace them is authoritarianism. And, and I actually believe that. I think that's right. And I think you can see that happening all around the world. So for Vidal's quote, the, the truth is that there's an awful lot to it if you look at domestic politics. And you can make a very similar argument both in terms of finances, but also in terms of power, in terms of international affairs. But I think you can make those arguments when institutions that that try and protect populations are secure. They are currently not secure. Once they become secure again, I would not only expect, I would hope that we would have very robust discussions about what those institutional systems should look like. But until then, I'm a big defender of the systems we've got. And that's really what it comes down to, right? Do you believe in liberal democracy? And do you believe in a rules-based international order for all that they have never lived up to their expectations? Or do you think they must be destroyed and replaced with something else? And I'm not against destroying them and replacing them with something else. If somebody showed me something else that would work and, and do better than we're doing right now. And since the only thing I'm seeing on the horizon is authoritarianism, I don't want it.
0: Heather Cox Richardson, Before we move on to the book itself, one more question there concerns third parties. My take would be that it's a spoiler vote. It's not going to help. It's as if you didn't vote. Uh, The response to that is, if there's minimal difference between the two parties, then I'm going to vote for somebody, and maybe we can make headway with that third person or the third party that is telling us you know, where they would go in a place that we want them to go.
1: So I actually like the idea of backing alternative primary candidates. Uh, Again, I think we're in a really unusual moment right now. So a lot of of what I'm talking about is more generic than for 2024. Because the way that works is if you back a primary candidate who then can trade those votes for, uh, say, in the platform, that matters. I mean, that's why we have Pete Buttigieg at, at transportation. That's why Uh, Elizabeth Warren has been able to do everything she's been able to do with anti-monopoly stuff. So I'm a big believer in that. Historically, third party votes have been devastating just devastating. So if you look for example at the liberty party vote in 1844, that's the reason by about 4000 votes in New York we got the expansion of human enslavement across the American West. Had it gone the other way, had Henry Clay been elected that year and it came down to about 4000 purity votes, we would not have had the spread of human enslavement and that you look at that and you just say, you know, it was a pure vote but but for literally, you know, thousands of human beings they lost their lives because of that. Now, now that being said, we have other options. And ranked choice voting is something that's worked incredibly well in my home state. And and that gives you the opportunity to really throw your weight behind people who might not otherwise really have the the staffs or the experience to take on the, the larger questions of governance. So a third party is hard in a country this big because you really have to have a party that is able to take on... All the aspects of governance from, you know, handling foreign affairs through, uh, you know, fixing the roads through all those things. And it's hard for a third party to have that kind of momentum and that kind of personnel. But in a case of, of someplace where you use ranked choice voting, you can say, listen, I really like this person on climate. And I'm willing to throw my vote for that person because of their their stance on climate and to put pressure on other people without actually throwing your vote away. So, you know, I, I know other states are experimenting with things like ranked choice voting. And I, and I think one of the things we're looking at going forward in the 21st century is adjusting our democracy in the many places that it does not adequately work.
0: Historically, we know that the founders of this country did not want a party system but it seems to me that based on what we've seen the two party system seems to be the only one that is working which kind of leaves us in a bit of a hole in your research into that did you find it really surprising that not that they failed so badly
1: that way so the the framers of the constitution did not believe that the country would have Parties, which they called factions, and this is in Federalist Number Ten, written by Madison, in which he talks about how we would never have factions in the same way that we never had uh, religious uh, uh, one major religion, because all the little factions would cancel each other out. So the rise of parties was really a surprise to a lot of the framers, and and the thing about that is not just that parties were bad, right, which is what they thought. But that if you think about the way they wrote the Constitution, there was a really important piece missing from democratic government, which of course they were experimenting with. They didn't really know how to do it. That is, they made a machine that worked, and they gave the vote to people, but they never figured out how to connect those two things. And what political parties did, which are not They are not in the Constitution. They are not part of our government. People make that mistake. They are actually external to government. They provided a bridge for ordinary people to interface with their government. And that was an innovation that people like Andrew Jackson brought in and really, really mattered. Now, one of the things about the fact we only have two major political parties, and and I would suggest we're going to have trouble gumming up with more than that unless we do adopt things like, like I just said, ranked choice voting or some of the other systems we could have, is that what we have always managed to do was to have these big tent parties that included a lot of different ideas in them and the the problem as political theorists will tell you in having a number of different political parties in our system is that you need, to under, you need to believe that when you vote for a party, it really will be able to take over the governance of this incredibly large, incredibly difficult, incredibly diverse country. And it's very difficult for a third party to come up, especially if it has one main or set of ideas about the economy or about uh, society or about the natural world, because they don't have the depth to say, yeah, I can manage climate change and I can manage the Fed you know that's it's it's a really big project to do so what we have traditionally tried to do is include a whole bunch of different ideas in that tent and it has historically worked pretty well. But where we are right now, as I say, is really different than we've ever been before, in the sense that one of those major political parties has become beholden to a group of people who don't believe in democracy. And that means that while on the Democratic side, you have actually a pretty big tent, if you think about the range of people from, say, Jared Golden in Maine to, you know, some of the, the, the people in the Progressive Caucus. It's a pretty decent sized tent as opposed to the Republican Party, which is now dancing to the tune of very, very few people. And that means that that it's hard to talk about our party system as being inclusive because really you're you're you know you're you're walking with one leg tied up.
0: I keep getting the feeling that we have one political party and then we have the fascists. The problem is the political party then takes over states. Now the fascists, of course, will do whatever they do in their states, but then you've got this one political party, which is a democracy, but it's one political party. Do you mean the Democrats? Yeah, you
1: yeah, yeah. Well, so so if in fact the Republican Party um, has has died by suicide. Or is in the process of dying by dying by suicide, which is, uh, you know, that would be a, a fascinating discussion too. Because of course I'm the historian of the Republican Party. What what has happened in the past when a, when this happens to a party, and it happened really dramatically in the 1870s, and the early 1880s with the Democratic Party. What happens is that there is a major party realignment. So the obvious thing to have happen here would be for the the today's Republican Party to become the white nationalist, Christian nationalist party, and then the Democrats simply to split. Our Democratic Party is, of course, basically a right of center party compared to any place in Europe. Right. So it has the potential to split and become some version of what we have now. Although at their hearts, the Democratic parties and the Republican parties are actually quite different from each other ideologically. So the 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 idea, the traditional idea of the Republican Party is one that is much more focused on there being sort of a societal web, whereas if the the government helps people at the bottom, they will produce more than they can consume. That'll help people in the middle. And they in turn will be able to support people at the top who will then employ people at the bottom. So it's kind of like this big web. Whereas the the traditionally the Democrats have believed in a much more linear system that's you know the haves and the have-nots. And those two things are actually not opposites. They're complementary or antagonistic. Different and, frames. Different frames. And and it is my expectation that somebody, regardless of what they're called, will pick up the Republican vision again the traditional one i mean i think we're not we're now in a like you say in a in a very different kind of framing for the this current republican party which is i've called anti-democratic and you've called fascist i think we can think of a number of terms like that right. that makes it an outlier in our political system for a major party we've certainly had this stuff in america all the time but for a major political party to have taken this position is unusual
0: one more question about and i don't want to go too far into a rabbit hole. But you're talking the 1870s. There was a major political party. There were two, actually. The Federalists vanished and the Whigs vanished. Is there any relationship between their vanishing and what we're seeing today?
1: I think not. I mean, those are those are parties that vanished. For the Federalists, kind of shot themselves in the foot in the feet, um, and, and we don't really need to go into that rabbit hole. And the Whigs ceased, I think, to be able to distinguish themselves from the uh, the Democrats at the time, and they were they were much more poorly organized. Plus, they had really bad luck; their presidents kept dying, um, which didn't help, right? And we've had other parties that rose and fell pretty quickly, but this is the first time that we've seen a party basically write itself out of the American experiment. Now, again, the thing that's interesting about the 1870s is that the Democratic Party did something very similar to that in 1879. They took over the the government. Uh, They were dominated by former Confederates. They tried to shut down the government and destroy it from within. And they were so roundly tossed out of office by voters that they reconceived themselves and became a party that centered in the northern cities and elected people like Cleveland. And from that, that rebirth, they became the dominant party of the, of the 20th century. So, I mean, we could be looking at that, but but I think that there's a really big difference between then and now in that it certainly seems as if today's radical right, today's extremists in the Republican Party are unlikely to let go of the party and people are less likely to, to split from them because they actually seem to seem to be concerned about their safety.
0: Which is scary. It is. Heather Cox Richardson, your book, Democracy Awakening, when you conceived of writing the book after how the South won the Civil War, was it originally kind of just going to be a look at your, your letters or did you have this plan of these three parts to begin with?
1: I never intended it for it to be part of the letters, which is funny because a lot of people saw the subtitle and thought it was just a collection of letters. And it's not. That, that day may come someday, but it's a lot harder to pick out which letters are good and which ones are not. This book was always intended to be a series of short essays explaining the questions that people ask me every day. How do the parties switch sides? What does it mean to be a liberal? What is a southern strategy? You know, those those sort of specific questions people ask every day. And it quickly became clear to me that what people really wanted to know is how did this happen? Like what's going on, and how do we fix it? Which is essentially what the book became. But what was interesting about it was that after I wrote the original draft of it, and there's short chapters, there's 30 chapters in about 250 pages. I put it aside for three months. And when I went back to it, I recognized that it had taken on a life of its own, which I really love. It's almost as if I had nothing to do with it. And what it really is, is a, I think a theoretical and a strong statement about the way authoritarians overturn democracies and the way they use language and history to do that. So it, it begins to explore that question and makes a large argument, I think, about history and that the idea that there is a history sort of captured in amber in our past that was perfect serves authoritarianism because it suggests that there are a series of God-given or universe-given laws that if only somebody would adhere to them, we could return to that. And in contrast to that, what the end of the book is about is a reclaiming of small d democratic history that says, no, America's never been about a perfect past. We've never, from the the very first moment that Europeans arrived on the North American continent, they were already longing for the perfect past. Instead, what has always made the United States able to preserve democracy and expand it is that marginalized peoples have always insisted on inclusion in the principles of the Declaration of Independence. The idea that people are equal, and they have a right to be treated equally before the law, and they have a right to have a say in their government. Of course, when the founders wrote that down, they had no intention at all of including women, for example, and and people of color. But those principles are expandable, and minority populations, marginalized populations have always held those up as an ideal to which they wanted to work. And it is that that has made American democracy vibrant, changing all the time, and unfinished. The point of a small d democratic history is it's never over.
0: When you were working on the book, did you go back and read your old letters to see how you did?
1: No. No, I have read a number of them in the past, though. I don't like going backward, ironically for a historian, right? Um, And and I will say one of the things that always surprises people, people think those letters are good and, and some of them really are, but there's a lot that aren't. You know, if you write every night, there's a lot that just is not really stuff that should be kept. So people have these memories of, oh, they're all great. And they're really not if you <laughs> go back. So everyone keeps saying, you should publish them all. I want to read it. And I'm like... Honestly, no, you don't. I mean, I should have a copy of them somewhere, but I promise you, you don't want to read them all.
0: Except that they are moments in time and they're little tidbits. Obviously, you know, from the vantage point of October 2023, you can look back at these two, almost three years of letters, four years of letters, and go, how did I miss that? So let me ask you to remember, what did you get that no one else got, if you remember? And what did you miss that you wish you had
1: gotten? So the things that I have gotten are things that other people have told me in the sense that these are a conversation with people, and people send me tips. So I believe I was one of the first people in the country to recognize that we had a really big problem with our freight trains, that they were being operated under a new system that was saving a ton of money for the the, the train owners, but that was really putting workers at risk. And that was a tip that somebody sent me because they had people who were working on the trains. So... I think that the things that I see are are either tips that people bring in or I see patterns because of the patterns that we have in our political history. Now, in terms of things I have missed, that's a little bit harder because I don't feel like there are things that I've ever sort of hit my head and gone, oh, my Lord, how did I miss that? Because... If you really have your ear to the ground, you don't miss a lot. I'm sure there have been things that I missed. I will tell you this one, though. I saw early on the material coming at, across my desk about COVID, and I actually wrote a whole paragraph in a letter, and then I thought, my readers are so stressed out. And realistically, what are the chances that a pandemic <laughs> would really come? So I excised that paragraph, but I left the notes in that night, figuring that a historian would see that I had seen it. And of course, that's if there's a story that I missed, that was the big one.
0: Heather Cox Richardson, one of the big things that's happening right now is that for the first time, maybe in a century, or at least since the 1930s, we're seeing antitrust come up. Uh, And this is something that Obama missed and Clinton. What do you think antitrust and what Biden is doing, how does that specifically Help democracy? And why do you think that for 30 years, particularly under two democratic administrations, we let it go completely?
1: So this is fascinating. One of the things that is frustrating about this moment for a historian, and also I suppose a great opportunity, is that because the radical right is taking up so much oxygen, we are not looking at these major changes that are happening kind of in the paperwork, if you will. So actually, and it's funny that this is on the, the tip of my tongue, because I've actually been looking into this recently. It was in July of 2021 that Biden gave a really big speech that basically nobody looked at that said, listen, we've got to deal with with trust. We've got to deal with the the, the fact that we've got monopolies all over the place. And they're huge, right? And what he, he said is that we're going to use, he keeps talking about the whole of government approach, which was kind of a joke at the beginning, because he would call all these different agencies in and say, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. But what he was doing, I think, was changing the trajectory of the government. So with the antitrust stuff, what this administration has done is it's gone back to a much older version of antitrust. So when we get the rise of antitrust in the 1890s and then really taking off in the early 20th century, what people like Louis Brandeis are arguing is, and he's a a justice on the Supreme Court, is that the reason we don't like monopolies is not just that they concentrate money. The reason we don't like them is because they stifle innovation, they make it really hard for workers to get decent money, and they make it really hard for small small companies to take off because they're being crushed by the big guys. So the idea of antitrust legislation from the beginning was because it is a societal good to make sure we have decent wages and innovation and lots of, of, of smaller companies, we're going to enforce antitrust legislation. And it's under uh, Robert Bork, in the 1980s, he writes this, this famous piece, and he really pushes the idea that, in fact, monopolies are good so long as they lower prices nothing else matters so long as consumers get lower prices so in fact what we've had since then is the concentration of wealth at the very top of the scale the very these large corporations and also things like non compete clauses so that ordinary workers can't move from one you know wage earning job to another and it's really hemmed in a number of ways our society at the same time that the initial cheaper prices that we got from some of these large monopolies have ceased to be that way they've taken advantage of their you know the, their large shares of the market to raise to raise prices so what this administration has done now is to insist on returning to that older vision and restoring competition restoring the ability of workers to negotiate for wages and to to try and promote innovation and stop everything from moving to the top so uh, in terms of what they're doing, I find this absolutely fascinating. Whether you agree with it or not, it is a sea change in the way our economy works. And it's a flip back to, you know, the guys I liked in the, in the progressive er- era earlier mm-hmm. on. But the question of why Obama and Clinton missed it, I think is a really important one, because it speaks to the question you asked earlier about, you know, the parties are the same. And obviously, I cannot speak for people why they did the things they did. But as a historian, one of the things that really fascinates me is what I would call the zeitgeist, or what I have think of in my own mind as little tornadoes. And that is that once you get a changed economic system, you tend to get what, again, in my incredibly sophisticated historical understanding I think of as little tornadoes, but places where the the popular culture and the religion and the education and the social structures and all that begin to spin around that idea. So the people who really firmly stand against that idea get spun out. They stop being elected to office. They stop getting a voice in popular culture. They stop showing up in movies. They stop getting invited to the parties. And it's the people who stay in those in those little tornadoes that managed to continue to be active in pu- in public life and so you don't get a moment where you can say oh the republicans did this in the in the 80s and then the democrats changed everything in the 90s the democrats do try to change things but they don't try to uproot the system the way that somebody like biden is doing and and i would say that that is not because Biden is coming in on a white horse, but because the zeitgeist has changed. And he has the room now to invent his own tornado, as opposed to simply adopting that of his predecessors. And that could be completely wrong, but that's the only way I think about it.
0: Well, but there's also at the same time, and I guess this is part of it, you've got Google and Microsoft having taken over so much, and then you've got, you know, Musk destroying twitter and then you've got you know the auto workers strike you've got the strikes in hollywood that there is some kind of change going on underneath the question is is it permanent or what
1: so i think there is a large change going on not just underneath but all around us and i can okay. point to a ton of different things to talk about on that front not you know and there's more strikes than you're talking about there's more organizing there's the fact that this always amuses me that young people are turning out for Kamala Harris as if she's a rock star and love the woman for everything she's done or anything else. She's a vice president. Like, you don't know who cheers on a vice president, really, right? right? So it's an, it's this new kind of moment. And I'm going to be a real jerk here and also point, because I've been thinking about it lately, point to um, Taylor Swift's tour across the, the, the country this summer, which is the highest uh, grossing concert right. tour in history. But what was interesting to me about that was it was cross-generational and it was women. Think about the, the, the huge numbers of daughters and mothers and aunts and girlfriends and all that that turned out across the country for an experience that was shared across generations. I mean, I think that, would, I think that was actually very important politically, um, not in terms of we're all going to go vote for something, but because we see ourselves as a community that's going to stake out its own turf differently than what has been been staked out in the past. So I think there's an awful lot of stuff going on. And when you ask, is the question permanent? This, first of all, is how change happens. But second of all, when people say to me, yeah, but this is so ephemeral, you know, and and mind you, I worry a lot about the, the fact that a number of Republican dominated states have locked up the election systems in their states. I worry about a lot of that stuff. But tell me how we go back. Tell me how we take this moment and say, never mind, we're going to go back to 2016 or 2014. And I don't see young people who are furious about gun safety legislation or the lack thereof and climate change and and you know the fact that they can't buy homes. And I can't see people like me saying, oh, this is fine. I'll be silent again. And I can't see people saying, oh, you're right. I don't care about being able to strike. I have a hard time having them say, oh, yeah, we think we're going to go back to where we were. I, I just don't see how you do that. The genie's out of the bottle.
0: And on top of that, there's this strange interregnum of 2020 and 2021 life before and life after and we haven't gone completely back something in the shutdown changed us i'm not sure what it is but something seems to have changed
1: i think that's right i will point out though that you know there's change and there's continuity as we are speaking there is a contest right now for Speaker of the House. And one of the people who is running for that is Jim Jordan of Ohio, who was instrumental in January 6th, the, the January 6th attack on the US Capitol. Well, wouldn't one have thought that anybody who was involved in trying to overturn our government would be out of it by now rather than running for one of the top positions in it? And that in fact, I think should give people pause about where we are. But that's not to say those reactionary forces are going to win. It's just to say that the party's not over yet.
0: Heather Cox Richardson, one thing you do in the book, uh, by the way, uh, in terms of Bork, you actually made the comment that uh, one of the problems with 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 prices coming down from monopoly is that it's all temporary yeah. it's all temporary
1: well yes it's certainly that argument as so many of the arguments of the 1980s were was was simply illusory i mean it was it was not founded in any kind of reality and that the 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 thing that that really frustrates me knowing a, not an insignificant amount about early trust anti, antitrust legislation and the rise of trusts and the ideas around the trusts is that the idea that fundamentally the idea that the society has to combat trusts is an idea about the size of government. because the whole argument that somebody like Theodore Roosevelt made about getting rid of the trusts was that we had to be able to have a government that was big enough to regulate those trusts. And Woodrow Wilson, of course, came in in 1912 and said, no, 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 what we're going to do is we're going to break up the trust and then everybody's going to be happy again and they're going to have their new freedom. And this this drove Theodore Roosevelt bonkers because he would say, what do you think's going to happen? They're just going to rebuild again. So you can't wedge yourself to a small government because – You can't return to that past. The only way we can handle a society that has the industry we have, and this would be in the early 20th century, is to have a big enough government to regulate that. And so I've always seen Bork's take on antitrust actions as being part of the attempt to get rid of business regulation, which was at the heart of the early years of the Reagan Revolution. It became something very different. But I think it's a much larger argument about the size of government.
0: Heather Cox Richardson, why did you become a historian?
1: I've always been interested in the stories people tell about their pasts, because if you think about it, and of course I couldn't articulate this when I first started to care about history, but if you think about humans, we are one of the only species that makes sense of the passage of time. And the way we make sense of the passage of time is our understanding of ourselves. So the story you tell about your life is very real to you. It may not be the story I would tell about your life, but it's incredibly important to who we are. And the stories that a society tells about itself is central to who they are. So I became a historian because I'm fascinated by the stories that people tell about themselves and the stories that nations tell about themselves.
0: And why Republicans?
1: Well, that was completely by accident. I am not, I, I, I keep writing these books about the Republicans. And, and I have to say, when I went to write my fourth book, I said to my agent, uh, we were talking about what I was going to write. And I said, I don't care what it is as long as it's not another expletive book about the Republicans. So I wrote a, a book about the Wounded Massacre. And you know who was to blame for the Wounded Massacre? the Republicans. And I'm like, really? Come on, really? So no, the answer to that is that I, I like the 19th century. I grew to like the 19th century largely because I think of who my advisor was and some of the early things that I began to develop. And if you are going to do politics in the 19th century, you must do the Republicans because they dominate the 19th century. Had I been a 20th century historian, I probably would have focused more fully on the Democrats as my primary interest. But of course, now I'm I'm doing much more with the Democrats simply because the the Republicans are really much less interesting if you've spent as much time with them as I have. And the Democrats are much, much more inter- newer and more interesting.
0: Where do you think ultimately, I mean, hopefully this will end on a positive note, but where do you think ultimately people will be talking about the Trump era? What, what are they going to get out of it?
1: I think they are going to look at how easily democracy could have been replaced by an autocrat. And I think one of the reasons that we are in the position we're in now is because coming out of World War II, Americans thought it couldn't happen here. And what I always like to say about that is that it did. It has. I mean, we had a one-party state that was overseen by a, not, not an autocrat, but by a single party that dictated the terms of justice or injustice in our country from the in the american south from about 1874 to about 1965 so the idea that democracies inherently protect themselves is just wrong and it is my hope coming out of this that people will look at the Trump years, but not just the Trump years. I mean, he doesn't fall out of the sky. He comes from something and say that if, in fact, we are going to take on the challenges of the 21st and the 22nd centuries around the globe of inequality, of health, of climate change, of the many things that we're facing as a as a human society, we must always be vigilant about protecting the guardrails of human self-determination. Whether that's in a democracy or a different kind of government, I think is less important than the fact that we are aware that we must protect the right to, to self-determination.
0: Heather Cox Richardson, this book is out. Have you started to think about the next one? Maybe. <laughs> and you're going to continue the uh, the letters ad infinitum.
1: I am. the le- Not ad infinitum. The letters started organically and they will end organically we will all know when it's time but they're they're really to be honest with you they're they're a lot they're you know a minimum of 1200 words at least six days a week and that's kind of superhuman and I'm uh, that I, I said when I started them I couldn't do them longer than a year it's been four I I can't do them forever and and when it's time for them to be done we will all know it and then I'll go on to something else
0: all I can say about it is that uh, for the past two years, two and a half years, three years, I don't remember how long it's been, either every day at night before I go to bed or when I get up in the morning, I read letters from an American, and most of the people I know do as well, so thank you.
1: Well, the the, the thing that's fun about the letters, I mean, I like keeping a record because I'm a historian, and I, I am so honored to be keeping this record in this era. But it's a conversation. It's a conversation between my readers and me, and and I learn things every day. And people come at things in a different way every day. And and that, when I talk about the future being a hopeful picture, and that there are things happening in this country that I don't think people are necessarily cluing into, in terms of hope for the future, that's a large part of it. The number, the, the fact that there are millions of people who are part of this conversation about democracy. And that does not mean we have to agree on policies or on candidates or on anything else. But we do agree that we should have a fact-based reality and that we should have a fact-based reality in which we're treated equally before the law and we have a right to a say in our government is incredibly exciting. And I suspect it is one that we did not see coming 10 years ago.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Heather Cox Richardson, whose latest book is Democracy Awakening notes on the state of america and to get to the newsletter you can either find it on facebook or you could go to substack and on my computer right now all i do is start typing in heather and it takes me right there (laughs) feedback on this and other radio alinsky podcasts is appreciated you can write to Bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.